I realized yesterday that here we are in the third week in a series called Hope of the Ages, and I have yet to define what hope is. <laughs> so let's do that before we go any further. Let's dive into that. And I know many of you know this, but it is always worth repeating to define biblical words carefully. When we use the word hope in the English language, as you know, it, it, it comes with a built-in, at least, sense of doubt in it. We say things like, I hope it will be sunny tomorrow. But we're not sure if it's going to be sunny or not. We just hope that it will be. We're trying to be optimistic, but we really aren't confident. So we say, well, I hope this happens. Then there's times when we add the word so at the end of hope. Somebody says, it's going to be sunny tomorrow. We say, I hope so. <laughs> but again, we're just trying to say positive. We really can't be sure. That is how we use the word hope in English. But that is not how the Bible uses the word hope. We talk about biblical hope in Scripture. It is not wishful thinking. It is not even positive thinking. In fact, let me just go ahead and put uh, a definition on the screen so that you can see it. Biblical hope is a confident expectation or assurance that's built on a solid foundation. So it's a reality, not a feeling. And that's one of the huge differences. When we hope for something, we're feeling something. Oh, I, I, just, I really feel like it should be sunny. I, I want it to be sunny. But it's a reality, not a feeling. The foundation upon which biblical hope rests is the rock-solid truth that God always fulfills His promises. Always. In other words, biblical hope is being confident that something will come to pass because God said it will come to pass. And so we have assurance in that. Biblical hope is built on the sure footing of God's Word. It's also built on the, the character of God Himself. And ultimately, biblical hope is built on the finished work of Christ. Now we have to know that, and here's why. We live in very uncertain times. I, I don't have to tell you that. I, I've told you that enough times. You know it's true. And I have this suspicion that it's going to get darker and, and worse and so if our hope is placed in anything less than what the Bible promises, then you and I are going to end up living very anxious lives. If our hope is in anything else, we're going to end up living in extreme anxiety. Let me just state the obvious, just to make it really clear. Biblical hope is not rooted in the stability of America. Biblical hope is not rooted in how our jobs or careers are going. It's not rooted in our possessions or how our 401k is doing or our investment portfolio or our savings accounts. Biblical hope is not in the economy of our state or our country. It's not rooted in government. It's not rooted in a particular political party. It's not even rooted in the upcoming election, even if we think things might change. Biblical hope is not rooted in the success of our children or in our physical health or in how many likes we get on our social media. It's not rooted in our self-image or what other people think of us. Biblical hope is not rooted in any human being, not a president, not a pastor, not a boss, not even a spouse. It's not rooted in our attempts to even make this world a better place to live. It's not rooted in religion or spirituality or moralism. If our hope is in any of those things, which all are shifting sands, then we will end up living in fear and anxiety. And what we'll do in order to compensate or to sort of offset that fear and anxiety is we will, as human beings, naturally employ a strategy of self-preservation 
and control. And those are two things that will always hinder the calling that we have to worship Jesus with all of our hearts and to love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. John Piper is famous for saying this, and I think he has it right. Hope is the birthplace of self-sacrificing love. Here's what he means by that. When we take our eyes off of the shifting things of this world and stop putting our trust in them, and we put our eyes on Christ and start trusting in the promises of God, then the anxieties that we feel in this life are progressively dispelled. And we are freed up more and more to worship God with abandon. We are freed up more and more to love and serve others as the top priority in our lives. Hope matters. So let's make sure we understand that as we talk about hope of the ages. With that definition now settled and fresh in our minds, we're going to press forward with our study of the, the, the ages of biblical history that we've been walking through thus far. Yes, I have a timeline. It's coming. And by the way, thanks for your patience last week. I know walking through uh, the gospel message in the entire Old Testament in one sitting is not easy. But in a way, I wanted to wear you out just a little bit. And you're like, really? Thanks, Jeff. But I wanted to wear you out a little bit so that you might feel just a sliver of the weariness that the Old Testament saints must have felt in waiting and waiting and waiting for the coming of their Redeemer. It had been a long long wait. And I hope that theme came through last Sunday. It had been a long wait. Remember, God had been faithful almost immediately after the fall, two and a half chapters into the Bible, to give mankind a promise that someday he would destroy evil permanently, right? Genesis 3.15, that he would someday renew and restore all of creation And that someday he will once again dwell in the presence of his people. And the promise in Genesis 3.15 is that he is going to accomplish that at some time in the future, in a time only known to him, through a particular individual who will come from this seed of the woman. It's an important promise. Everything else builds off of that. Now last week, I referred to this mysterious individual who's coming at some point. I called him the head crusher which sounds really, really, really cool and macho, the head crusher. But he's the one who's going to someday come and crush the head of the serpent at the appointed time, the time that only God knows. And the promise is that he will be the rescuer of mankind. He will be the remedy for sin. He will be the redeemer of God's elect. He will be Israel's Messiah. He will be the savior of all men, both Jews and Gentiles, those who are the true sons of Abraham by faith. That's the promise we see in Genesis 3.15. So the entire Old Testament then is the unfolding of that redemptive story that starts in Genesis 3. It's the story of hope. It's the hope of mankind. And woven throughout this Old Testament story, through all of the prophets and through the patriarchs and all these different narrative pieces are snapshots or breadcrumbs, if you will, that if you collected them all together and put them together like a mosaic, you'd say, aha, There he is. There's the head crusher. We now know who he is. But how long is this going to take, Lord? That's what the Old Testament saints had to be thinking. How long? So we looked at the timeline last week, and I'm going to give you a fancier one today, just so that you can sort of, I know. Tanny walked by my computer all week going, what are you doing? Um, So let's just quickly look at this. Last Sunday, we walked through a number of important ages of this Old Testament narrative, key moments and passages that lead us to the head crusher. It starts with what's on the far left, 
We talked about it in week one, the eternal decree, where before creation, before time even began, God sovereignly willed and ordered all things that would take place within time and space. And we had the creation, and soon after, we're not sure how long, we had the fall. And then, of course, God did the global reset thing, right? With the flood. Then we had the calling of Abraham, and this was really a key moment. We looked at Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. By the way, some roundabout dates are on the bottom so that you understand where we are in the B.C. period. God's promises in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12 and 22. Then we had the other patriarchs, right? The redemptive line, the sons of promise, Isaac and Jacob. And then we found out that the line is actually going to go through Judah, right? Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah. Then we looked at Moses really briefly. We talked about the coming of the law, right? The promise of Deuteronomy 18 that, that, uh, that God would raise up a prophet like Moses and that Israel should watch for that prophet. We looked at the land that was conquered by, by Joshua. Then we came to David. Okay, David's a huge, important part. More specific promises that narrow the identity of who the head crusher will be. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. But sadly, after David, we had the division of the kingdom between north and south, right? After Solomon, we have the division of the kingdom and Israel spiraling down into idolatry and all forms of spiritual adultery. So what did God do? He sent prophets. He sent prophets for 400 plus years from Obadiah to Malachi, calling the people back to faithfulness, warning them of judgment, consequence for continuing in spiritual adultery, and preparing them for the coming of the head crusher, right? Prophets like Isaiah and Micah and Zechariah and others drop these hints, these breadcrumbs about who this head crusher will be and when he will come. Now, take note on that timeline. It's not up there. Maybe next week. After Malachi, we have another 400 years before Christ comes. 400 plus, about 430 years. The intertestamental period, a time where there is no prophetic voice in Israel. And imagine again, the Jews have been waiting all these years, thousands of years, for this head crusher, for this redeemer, for the promise to be fulfilled, and now they're going to go through 400 more years of silence. Now, they still had the Hebrew Scriptures, right, that spoke of God, but the prophetic voice had, had disappeared from the earth. Can you imagine what it did to their spirit? Can you imagine how it might have dampened their hope? Lord, how long do we have to wait now, in the New Testament, God provides the church with an interesting commentary on this waiting period through the Apostle Peter. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12. through 12. Listen to what Peter writes. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So this is really interesting, right? Apparently God spoke to the Old Testament prophets through the Holy Spirit, giving them some measure of information about how this plan of salvation was going to unfold. Not all the details, obviously, but enough to sort of whet their appetite to where they, they began to search diligently and to investigate carefully to find out who is this head crusher going to be and what era might he come in. It's the who and the when, right? Remember, Isaiah and Micah, they wrote 700 years before the coming of Christ. So in human terms, Messiah was still a long way off at that point, and the mystery of who and when 
continued to sort of rattle around in their hearts and their minds. When is this going to happen? Now, a good way for us to understand what the prophets saw and didn't see is a word picture you've probably heard before and something we can connect with in our mind's eye. It's as if God gave the prophets a picture of, of two mountain peaks, one right in front of them and then one further behind. And if you ever stood in front of mountain peaks, there's one right in front of you and there's one behind, you can see the, the peak on the other side. It's very interesting. You know there's another peak, but you have no idea right, what's between the two mountains. And you have no idea how much distance is between those two mountains. And so the prophets could only see what they could see and only what God had given them in terms of revelation. So that's what the prophets were dealing with. They could see the peak in the distance, but they couldn't see the who or the when. Now, look at what else Peter points to after this. He says, It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you. That's us. Serving you, New Testament believers, the church. They were serving you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, I love this, things into which angels long to look. So the Spirit communicated to his prophets this message. Listen, be patient. You are not speaking on my behalf just for yourself, just for your generation, just for your audience, but you are serving worshipers of Yahweh who will be alive for hundreds and thousands of years after you're gone. They will see in your prophecy the proof that I am who I say I am, and the message that you're delivering right now on my behalf will be of infinite value to them. Wow. Now, I mentioned a couple times last week that the angels, you know, the, these, these created beings who exist in the spiritual realms, they too were watching God's eternal decree unfold in time and space. And I mentioned that they must have been scratching their heads. Like, what's going on here? Why are we have failure after failure? Every time there was hope that this guy was going to be the, the redeemer or that guy was going to be the head crusher, that person would fall woefully short every single time. So they must have been scratching their heads. How long, Lord, until you make this plan come together? And in the midst of all this wondering, it happened. It happened. I mean, just a, I, I guess just an average day, right? An average night, it happened. When the fullness of the time came, Paul writes in Galatians 4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. What a stunning statement that is. Just one short sentence. In the fullness of time, in the right time, according to God's perfect decreed timetable, God sent forth His Son from heaven to earth, born of a woman. Amazing. 4,000 years. 4,000 years after the promise in Genesis 3. 2,000 years after the Abrahamic covenant. 1,000 years after the covenant with David. Suddenly, one starry night, the moment had arrived. All those promises, all those breadcrumbs, all those generations that came and went, and here it was, so suddenly, hope fulfilled. So when we read, as we did this morning in Luke 2, is there any, is there any um, mystery as to why the angels wanted to gather over Bethlehem and sing praises to God? After all this time, it had happened. And so the whole heavenly host gathers over Bethlehem, and they sing glory to God in the highest. Amen and amen. The plan was unfolding. The head crusher was here. 
Now, there's a lot of things that we could talk about in terms of the hope of Christmas. I know that everybody likes to, to hear about that. What I want to focus on in the time that we have this morning is the surprising identity of the head crusher. The surprising identity. Now you say, well, why is this surprising? We've got all this data in the Old Testament to work off of. That's true. That's true. But there were still two very important things about the head crusher that Israel completely missed, didn't see coming at all. And at Christmas time, it's worth looking at those two things because they are full of wonder. Christmas is about wonder. Christmas is about trying to fathom the unfathomable. Is that the right word? Trying to fathom something that we can't fathom, right? The wonder of Christmas, that God became man. It's nuts. So here's the first thing that Israel just could not have seen coming. That it was going to be God himself. That Yahweh himself was coming. And not only that, Yahweh incarnate. That's amazing. Let's be honest. Without, Apart from hindsight and some special, specific divine revelation, nobody would have seen that coming. Nobody in Israel. Last week we talked about the various messianic expectations that first century Jews had for Messiah, right? He's a king. He's a military leader. He's a priest. He's a prophet. Maybe he's two men, right? Maybe he's two different men. All kinds of theories. But nobody in Israel was saying, I know Messiah is going to be Yahweh wrapped in flesh. Didn't see it coming. And what a mystery. This is actually what Paul calls it when he writes to Timothy. Let me put this verse on the screen. He writes to Timothy at the end of chapter 3. He says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now when he uses that word mystery, he's referring to a truth that was once hidden in the Old Testament, which has now been revealed in Christ. And he's not referring here to our godliness. What he's referring to here is the mystery that makes our godliness possible. The coming of Christ. Here's what he says. He goes on. He says, listen to this this sort of thread of the, the fullness of Christ's life. He who was revealed in the flesh, that's the incarnation, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Who would have written that script except God? It's a great mystery, isn't it? When we think about the greatest miracles recorded in the Bible, I think if I asked most Christians, the first thing they would think about would be the resurrection. And it's true that a man who, who, who you know, raises from the dead, that's a pretty mind-blowing miracle. But I would submit to you that the incarnation is even more mind-blowing than the resurrection. By the way, we get the, the word incarnation. The root of that word is a Latin word. It's carno. It means flesh, right? It's where we get our word carnal from. So we, we speak about somebody who lives a sort of worldly life. We call him a carnal person because he's not living in the spirit. He's living in the, in the flesh. If we're hungry, we might go out and get some carne asada, right? Right? Spanish word for meat is carne, right? It all comes from this, this same root, carno. So when we speak of the incarnation, we're describing God who became enfleshed. Think about that. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth. John 1.14, the word became flesh. That, that is a crazy idea. That is, that is an unfathomable thing. And yet it's easy in the church to just sort of go, yeah, we get that. Really? I'm still trying to figure this out. How is it possible that Almighty God can join Himself to frail and fickle human flesh? 
For most people in the first century, whether you're a Greek or a Gnostic or a legalistic Jew, that idea is just ridiculously scandalous. Yahweh would never compromise himself by interacting with corruptible, finite matter. And yet, what we see in the New Testament is this mystery. This thing that had been hidden during the Old Testament period and now revealed. That God was not only willing to join himself to human flesh, but out of love, he was willing to actively intervene in human history to redeem a people for himself. That's the Christmas story. C.S. Lewis called the incarnation the grand miracle. Here's what he wrote about it. He said, every other miracle prepares for this one or results from it. Think about that statement for a second. Every other miracle prepares for this one or results from it. The incarnation was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. He's not wrong. Think about this. As we've seen in this study, the entirety of the Old Testament, from Genesis 3 on, including all of the other Old Testament miracles that we read about, they're all pointing towards this one, the coming of the head crusher. And every New Testament miracle afterwards, including the resurrection, becomes possible precisely because the head crusher was not just a normal human being, but was the God-man. So the entire Old Testament prepares us for the Incarnation, and the entire New Testament results from it. I think Lewis has it right. It's an amazing statement. On top of that, J.I. Packer writes this. He says, The Incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. That's a really important thought. See, when you accept the truth that Jesus was born as God in the flesh, any other theological difficulties that you might be wrestling with sort of melt away. The virgin birth, the healings, the walking on the water, all those things, the resurrection, it's because Jesus was God. So if you, can, if you can accept the incarnation, everything else becomes much, much easier. In fact, the incarnation has been called the master key that opens up the rest of the New Testament. It really does explain so much. Why is Jesus' life so powerful? Because he's God incarnate. Why are his teachings so authoritative? Because he's God incarnate. Why does his death matter? Because he's God incarnate. Why does the resurrection give us hope? Because he's God incarnate. It starts here with the incarnation. So if you're able to step back and sort of lay aside all of the tradition and the cultural baggage of Christmas and just look at the sheer audacity of this miracle itself, there is nothing that can compare to it. Nothing. Listen to this. The Creator entered into his creation the eternal stepped into time the divine took on humanity omniscience took on limitations the sovereign subjected himself to the sinful will of men whom he itself had made the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power now needed to eat and drink and rest and yes, use the bathroom. That's a miracle. C.S. Lewis continues his thought. He writes this. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still to the womb, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he created. 
Calvin called that the condescension of Christ. He would condescend to our level in that way. That's amazing. Yeah, the Almighty really did come as a baby. He really did come as a helpless human baby, unable to do anything more than to stare and to wiggle and to make baby sounds. That's wild. Needing to be fed and changed and taught like any other child. And it wasn't just a facade. The Scriptures tell us that the babyhood of the Son of God was an actual reality. And so were the circumstances of His birth. God sovereignly chose to enter our world through a very common teenage girl. God picked that way. He decreed it to be so. Born in a stable, in a little village that nobody cared about. Raised by a simple carpenter in the forsaken land of Galilee. Yeah, this was actually God's plan. He had decreed it. A very uncommon person growing up in very common surroundings. It was not the life of an earthly king. It certainly wasn't the life of a divine king, a king of the universe. And as you begin to just unpack all of that, again, if you don't just let the baggage of Christmas wear you down, but you begin to unpack all of those details, the incarnation becomes more and more staggering the more you think about it. Most of us know Philippians 2, 6 and 7 really well, but it's so important to read it again at Christmas time because it's so powerful. Although Jesus existed in the form of God, He'd been that way for all eternity with His Father. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be, to be grasped onto, to be gripped onto, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, being made in the likeness of men. That's amazing. God emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his eternal glory. He emptied himself of his divine dignity. He emptied himself of the, the voluntary use of all of his God capabilities in order to become like you and me, even as a baby. It's wild. To come near his people and to make God understandable to us. To say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now you can understand God. I've walked with you. I've become one of you in a personal and tangible way. What a mystery. There's an old story. There's several versions of it, but it, it, it gets me every single time I read it, and I'm going to read it again today because this is just the right Sunday. It's a story of a, a man who had a family. He wasn't hostile towards Christianity, but the story of Christmas, he had no interest in it. He just thought that the whole idea of God becoming a man was nothing more than an old wives' tale. He was a decent guy, a kind husband and a father. He even went to church occasionally to, to keep his wife happy. But he just couldn't buy into the claim that God would become a man. That just did not make sense to him. And one year on Christmas Eve, his wife and kids wanted to go to the traditional midnight church service. Anybody ever been to one of those? Traditional midnight service. He refused to join them this year. He said, I feel like a hypocrite. I just don't believe it. So he said, I'll just stay home. And then right after the family drove away, it began to snow, and then it began to snow harder, and within about a half an hour, it was a near blizzard outside. So the man went to his comfortable chair, and he stoked his fireplace. He began to watch television, waiting for his family to come home from church. And then suddenly, behind him, there's this thump at the window. He didn't know what it was. First he thought, well, maybe it's 
some neighbor kids throwing snowballs at the house. But it's after midnight now. That didn't make any sense. So he got up and he opened the front door to investigate and the cold and the wind hit him like a freight train. And then glancing off to his right, he realized what the thumping sound had been. There's a flock of small birds outside the window fluttering in a panic trying to get out of the storm and they're ramming themselves into the window because they see light and they're thumping into the window. And this guy says, I, I can't just let these poor creatures freeze out there, but, but what am I supposed to do? How do I fix this? And then he remembered he had a barn out back. He thought to himself, it'll be warm enough. It'll save the birds from freezing. And so he put on his coat. He made his way through this storm, throws open the barn door, and he turns on the light, and he looks over at the house and waits for the birds to come and fly into the barn. Not one bird flies towards the, the barn. They're still flapping desperately outside the front of the house. His plan was a great one. It just didn't work. He thought maybe they'll be attracted to food. So he made his way back to the house. He got a loaf of bread. He began picking apart the bread and leaving a trail to the barn. And again, he stood in the barn and looked. Not one bird seemed to understand that they had to follow the bread to get into the barn. Dumb birds, he said out loud. Can't they see that I'm trying to save them? So he started shouting at them and waving his arms, trying to push them towards the barn. And all that did was cause the birds to be more confused and to scatter. Some of them went off into the night. Others were dropping dead right in front of the house. Not a single bird flew toward the barn to escape, not one. And it suddenly dawned on him. Obviously, I'm a big and scary person. There's just no way they could understand who I am if I could only become a small bird just for a really short time to show them that I care for them and that I'm trying to save them. That's what Jesus did. That's what God did. That was God's plan, to become one of us, to say, this is who I am, and I care for you, and I want to see you saved. So he became one of us. And he was met by a crazy world, just like ours today. Violence, pain, disease, disappointment, sorrow. Don't ever be fooled into thinking that the world that Jesus walked into was any better than what we're experiencing today. It wasn't. So in a very strange way, this is, this is going to sound a little heretical, God learned something through the incarnation. He learned firsthand what it means to live as a human being. Now, he could fully know that because God knows everything, but... He couldn't fully experience it until he took on flesh. And so now, the God of the universe can personally sympathize with all that you're going through right now. If, you, if you're out there you just, every day just beating yourself up, God, I'm such an awful person, you could never understand. Yes, he can. Yeah, he can. He knows you better than you know yourself. He understands all the ups and downs of life, all your hopes and fears, all of your triumphs and tragedies. He's experienced them. God sovereignly chose not to withdraw from this fallen world, not to ditch it when it became filled with sin. Could have just left us with no hope, but he determined instead to rescue and redeem his creation and to do so at the highest possible cost that you and I can imagine. 
And in doing that, God not only became passionately involved in human affairs, but catch this. By decreeing this plan to save you and I, God made himself tremendously vulnerable. Think about this. Few people are more vulnerable than parents. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. When our children are born, and as they grow, we realize we've got to slowly release them into the world. And when we do that, there is always the possibility that they're going to be harmed, that they're going to suffer, and we hate that idea. It's the thing that keeps us up at night. Now apply that to the Father. Apply that same vulnerability to God the Father for Him to first decree and then to watch as His one and only Son, completely free of sin, was rejected and mistreated and beaten and whipped and spat on and crucified. And yet it still pleased the Father to crush His Son so that you and I would be justified in His sight. Can you imagine the pain of a father having to watch that? Listen, God is not dispassionate. God loves His Son. The Father's willingness to send His Son into this world, knowing full well what would happen, decreeing what would happen, is the greatest expression of love and commitment that any of us can ever comprehend. Never forget that at Christmas. 2 Corinthians 8-9 is such a beautiful verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. The Christmas message is that there is a hope for ruined humanity. There is hope for forgiveness. There is hope for peace with God. There is hope of glory because God the Father was willing to send His Son. And because Jesus was willing to become poor for our sake. Friends, if we take the miracle of the incarnation lightly and we fail to realize its significance, our worship is going to be deficient. Our worship of God will be deficient and our wonder, the wonder of our faith, is going to be far less than what it should be. That's the first thing Israel missed. That it would be God himself enfleshed. Second thing, second thing Israel missed, very simply, is that this head crusher came not to conquer, but to suffer. If the Messiah had come forth into Israel in the first century as a warrior king and had driven out the Romans out of Palestine, and half of Israel would have said, yep, saw that coming, we knew that. It's exactly what we thought. And even if he didn't do that, if the head crusher came instead as this ultra-academic, learned Pharisee who captivated the Sanhedrin with his wisdom and ruled over Israel as her greatest sage, others would have said, yeah, I expected that as well. Even the idea that Messiah would come and be a great high priest, that was accepted. In fact, there was an idea among the rabbis that the Messiah would be all three of those things, prophet, priest, and king. And that was hotly debated. But listen, a Messiah who was a high priest who came and offered himself? Never. Scandalous. A king or a prophet who'd be arrested and 
Crucified by the Romans, not a chance. Not acceptable. Now, that's not to say there weren't any hints or shadows of a suffering Messiah being talked about in Israel in the first century. The great sages of Israel had to deal with the fact that Isaiah speaks of a suffering servant. In fact, there's four great servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah. They're in chapters 42, 49, and 50, and then most famously in 52 and 53. They're called servant songs because they're written in poetic fashion, poetic format. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of of what the first three predict, and then we'll look a little bit deeper at the fourth one. Here's what Isaiah 42 says, the first of the great servant songs. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Guys, look at the words there. That is high praise from God. This is a unique and special individual that Isaiah is talking about here. And we know that these very verses, by the way, are applied specifically to Jesus in Matthew 12. He goes on, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So this individual that Isaiah is prophesying about will be capable of leading others into spiritual freedom. And the implication there is leading them to salvation. And again, not just in Israel, right? But a light to the nations, to all the nations, to both Jew and Gentile. That's song number one. Song number two comes from Isaiah 49. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I also will make you a light of the nations. So look at that. The individual is going to be formed by God in the womb to be his unique servant. And again, he'll be given a mission beyond the borders of Israel to all the nations. Now, song number three comes from Isaiah 50. This is where the picture of suffering begins to really come into view. This is the servant speaking. He says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. And yet the servant knows that even in this mistreatment and suffering, that his mission is righteous, that he's not alone, and in the end he'll be vindicated. Look what it says. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. And then, of course, song number four is from Isaiah the end of 52 and all of 53. And we've heard this many times before. Jana actually read a little bit of it this morning in our Advent reading. What we often don't realize is that this particular song, the end of 52 and 53, is preceded by a scene in heaven where God declares how beautiful the saving message will be when Messiah comes. Here's what it says. How lovely are the feet. I'm sorry. How lovely in the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Israel, your God reigns. And the promise from God is that he will succeed in all that he does. And as a result of his faithfulness, he's going to receive a threefold blessing. Look what it says. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. 
Now that language there, high and lifted up and greatly exalted, that is the language of a coronation of a king in God's presence. Who receives that type of praise from God except for God? Only God. But then Isaiah sets this, the glory of God's servant in that, what you see on the screen there, against the backdrop of suffering. You heard the language already this morning. Despised and forsaken and a man of sorrows. Our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb being led to slaughter. And by his scourging, we are healed. Isaiah predicts that God's servant will be so badly beaten, his appearance so disfigured that he will not even look human anymore. And the prophecy is that the Jews are going to look upon him and have to turn away, almost as if he has leprosy, he's been stricken so badly. They'll be astonished by his appearance, it says. And interestingly, later the Babylonian Talmud, which is the central text of Jewish rabbinical scholarship, even to this day, makes this very connection. Look at this quote from the Talmud. Commenting on the identity of the servant in Isaiah 53, it says this, His name is the leper scholar. As it is written, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken as a leper, smitten of God and afflicted. Where is he sitting? At the entrance to the gate. And by what sign may I recognize him? He is sitting among the poor lepers. That's what the rabbis thought about the Messiah of Isaiah 53. So there was some sense in the land, even if it was a hushed opinion, that this servant would come and be horribly beaten, that he would be an outcast, even viewed as unclean by the Jewish population. And of course, being nailed to a cross is the ultimate curse in the law. And so this servant from Isaiah 53 would end up becoming a spectacle to his own people. And yet, in spite of all of the ugliness and the suffering, Isaiah reports the saving results of what God's servant will produce through suffering. Look what he says. He says, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. The image of the bleeding Savior on the cross in all of its sacrificial glory is prophesied to cause the kings of the earth to be silent before this servant. Kings of the earth, the most powerful people on earth, would one day behold in wonder at what God had done through his servant. What has he done? He's justified the many. He has sprinkled many nations. That image of sprinkling, that's the high priest, right? Going into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the Lamb's blood on the mercy seat for atonement. Isaiah gives us these two pictures, atonement and justification. Jesus comes to be both our high priest and our sacrificial lamb. Two surprises. Two things Israel did not see coming. First, that Yahweh would personally come to fulfill Genesis 3.15, taking on human flesh and being found in the likeness of, of mankind, the last Adam, as Paul calls him. Why? Because the first Adam failed so miserably. Jesus, the last Adam, would succeed where Adam had failed. 
And second, that he would come not to conquer by, by sheer raw power, but he would come in gentleness and in humility, with mercy and grace, and he would suffer and give up his life to pay the ransom for you and me. Didn't see it coming. Would you have? God's a continual surprise, isn't he? In the best of ways. Okay, time to wrap up. Here's the thing. At the, at the end of the day, as we close up the Old Testament and all the expectations that went with it, as we finish the gospel narratives in wonder, one thing becomes very, very clear, and it's very simple. The hope of the ages is Jesus. It's Jesus. God incarnate, come to suffer and die on our behalf. Jesus is the head crusher of Genesis 3.15. And I love the way Paul, when Paul writes to Timothy, and I love the relationship Paul has with Timothy, right, this mentor-mentee thing, he says, and the very first thing he says to Timothy, he writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. That's it. I mean, we can make it complicated, but this is the simple truth. Christ is our hope. And we, listen, we sang this truth earlier in the service, right? My hope is built on nothing less, nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On that solid rock, I stand. Because everything else, shifting sand. Is that the rock that you're standing on today? Are you glad this morning that Almighty God loved His people enough to step into our world, to condescend to our level? And not just that, as Grant said earlier, it didn't end in Bethlehem, it ended on the cross. The ransom paid for you and for me. This Christmas, let's pray that God would give us a renewed sense of awe and wonder. Not in just the lights and the gifts and all the trappings, but in the incarnation itself. Because of the incarnation, our hope today is certain. Amen? Now, here's the thing. Here's my teaser for next week. Our hope is certainly sure right now, but it's yet to be fully realized. That's our topic for next week. Are you ready? Christmas and Revelation. So get ready to be even more amazed. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing, amazing miracle. Lord, I pray that we will step back and, and just take it all in today. And even over the next couple of weeks as we gather around meals and with family and as we hang lights and Christmas trees and all these things, Lord, that we will never forget the importance of the incarnation, the mystery and the wonder of it all, Lord, that you would love us so much to take on flesh, that you would love us so much to suffer in our place. May those be the conversations that we're having over the next couple of weeks. May those be the conversations we're having over the dinner table for your glory, Lord, and for the building up of your church. Thank you for this time this morning. We pray and we praise you in the name of the head crusher, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>